Welcome to the Soul Trap. We are once again here in the Soul Trap studio, connecting dots. You know, when we first started the Soul Trap years ago, and it has been years now, it was nothing more than a Bible, a book, and really my iPhone. And I have to give credit where credit is due. My wife said, you need to go and start recording some of these things. I think, honestly, she was getting tired of hearing it. And <laughs> I don't blame her. I understand. As I was reading the Bible and then starting to read some of these other books, something really powerful began to set in. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. It is simply this, that the world is only now catching up to the advancement of the King James Bible. The fact is, the Bible is the most paranormal, quantum physical, quantum theoretical dimensional book that is out there. All these other streams that you see being fed into our daily zeitgeist, uh, the uh, increase in UFO activity, the increase in dimensional activity, the increase in conspiratorial activity, all of these streams were already there, already foretold, and if you were a Bible believer, you were already aware of what was going on. It's just now, more than ever, the dots are coming through, and it is us in this generation who are able to connect the dots and to see what is happening. Sometimes we're able to connect dots of conspiracy to the Bible. Sometimes we're able to reach out and connect dimensional dots to the Bible. Sometimes we're able to put two or three together. And sometimes we're able to go back in time, back in antiquity, back to archaeology and connect dots from the past to the future. And when we understand the past from a, I hate to say it, but a para-archaeological concept and construct, when we understand the past, it sheds light on what is actually going on in the future. Because the truth of the matter is, the system right now wants to keep us locked in a matrix of consume, digest, consume more, digest, consume more, digest, and then die. That fundamentally is the matrix system that we're living in. But when you understand the past in the light of the perfect Word of God, then it begins to give you insight on the world in which we actually live. And the world in which you and I actually live is a very layered world, a complex world. And as I've said before, quantum studies are only now beginning to catch up to what the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, spiritual wickedness, the rulers of darkness. In other words, there is a physical world and there is a spiritual world, and that by definition is paranormal, or may we say paraphysical. So we come to this study of this particular episode dealing with the past, with archeology, span and with one of the most famous of all antiquities, Noah's Ark. Aside from the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail, which in itself is probably nothing more than a Catholic myth. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberry. One could not think of a greater archeological discovery than the Ark of Noah. Just for the sake of its theological ramifications alone. But beyond that, it would have a lot of ramifications to our historical timeline, to our understanding of the past, to our belief in the Bible, to even the very nature of the earth, understanding the plain nature of the earth. 
but I don't want to digress too much into that. Regardless, the discovery of Noah's Ark would be off the charts unbelievable, and it would really be even more unbelievable because it's possible that the Ark of the Covenant could be forged, but how could you forge Noah's Ark? Its mass, its size, it would be amazing. Well, there is an article that asks, is Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat? The search for the real Noah's Ark, many of its proposed locations, and the issues around trying to figure out if it is on Mount Ararat. Now, I want you to stay with me because if you think you've heard everything about the search for Noah's Ark, I'll promise you that by the time we get to the end of this, there's going to be a twist that you don't see coming. Dr. Andrew A. Snelling in Answers Magazine writes the following article. Despite multiple expeditions over many centuries, Noah's Ark still has not been found. Of all the famous lost artifacts yet to be found, Noah's Ark seems to top the list in many people's minds. From Hong Kong to Holland, the world is fascinated by Noah's Ark. And this isn't surprising because so many cultures have ancient flood stories. Now, that is something that's very interesting. And if you're a young person, college student, or even if you're a skeptic, there is something to that. Whether you go to the Chaldean, whether you go to the Akkadian, the Sumerian, Chinese, Asiatic, even the Hopi Indians, all around the world there is this common theme of this common flood, which betrays the fact or belies the fact that it cannot be simply regional. If you've got Eskimos talking about a flood and on the other side of the world you have Babylonians talking about it. The article goes on to state, though distorted in the details, many of these stories seem to reflect the true account of Genesis chapter number 6. This fascination is also bringing people in droves from around the globe to the life-sized Ark replica at the Ark Encounter in northern Kentucky. Interestingly, they have used, in Kentucky, they have used the proportions of the Ark uh, to reconstruct it, but they have added their own twist, and this is interesting. They have shaped there in Kentucky and made it like a, blow, a boat, floatable, seaworthy. But I want you to keep this in mind. We'll circle back to this. The Bible never describes the ark as a boat, never describes it floatable, never gives it a rudder, never gives it any kind of stabilizing factor. In fact, if you read the Bible account, it is simply nothing but a large rectangular box with a covering. Remember that as we circle back around. Dr. Andrews continues to write, at the same time, several teams have continued searching for the real Ark. Most of them had focused on Mount Ararat in the northeastern part of Turkey, where eyewitness accounts of a wooden structure have spurred interest for centuries. With such a large vessel and so much interest, the question has been asked, why hasn't it been found? Perhaps, the article states, we need to look again at the account in God's Word. It says that the ark landed, and that is actually a misstatement. Again, I'll come back to that again, but it didn't say landed. It says, the article states, it landed on the, quote, mountains of Ararat on the 150th day of the flood in Genesis 8, chapter 4. This was a region, not a single mountain. Furthermore, explorers have overlooked the geological makeup of this region in their age-old quest for Noah's Ark. 
How were the rocks and strata in this region formed and changed during the flood and in the years afterwards? The biblical reference to the mountains of Ararat as the landing site of the ark suggests those mountains formed well before the flood ended. The flood was a global catastrophe that totally reshaped the earth's geology and the earth's surface. And the earth has continued to change since then. In fact, a lot of people believe that at one point, the earth was actually one continent. And that if you were to look and begin to squeeze those continents back together, you would find that they were actually broken up during the flood. In fact, the Bible talks about the earth being broken up. The Bible even talks about in the days of Peleg, there being a division. And some have argued that that was the final shifting of the earth's crust even years after the traumatic catastrophe of the flood. The article goes on to state, perhaps the geology of modern Ararat region sheds light on whether we should be looking for Noah's Ark on that particular mountain. Since the 1800s, several dozen expeditions have scaled Mount Ararat in hopes of finding evidence of Noah's Ark and more are planned in the coming years. Satellite imagery has yielded a lot of interesting pictures, and aerial photographs have generated interest as well in several sites. Most excursions have focused on a handful of locations based on earlier reporting, and there are several key areas where people are looking. One is what's called the Ararat Anomaly. A U.S. Air Force reconnaissance plane took black and white images of the northwest side of Mount Ararat in 1949, revealing a large object that resembles a portion of a ship. The images were made public in 1995 and sparked immediate interest. Then there is what is called the Ahura Gorge. One mile below the peak of Ararat is the Ahura Gorge. This site gained popularity when George Hakapian that's a mouthful, and an Armenian claimed his uncle took him on top of the ark as a young boy around 1908. Throughout his lifetime, he proclaimed that he discovered as truth the ark, but he was unable to pinpoint the exact location of his discovery. Now, one of the things that happens with Mount Ararat is people think, oh, well, it shouldn't be that hard, but Mount Ararat is a very high mountain, and it is a very large mountainous range. There is also what's called the Undisclosed Nami Site. A Turkish guide, Ahmet Etregul, supposedly found compartments from the Ark's interior on the south side of Mount Ararat. He actually took photographs in 2008, which you can see online and see here, and reported them to Nami, a Hong Kong-based ministry, but there was never any real proof of that. Then there is the area called the Dura Pinar. Heavy rains exposed a large arc-shaped formation in 1948, approximately 15 miles from the summit of Mount Ararat. A 1960 expedition found only dirt and rocks, but explorer Ron Wyatt, and he's a pretty good guy to follow, went back in the 1970s and 80s claiming he found an outline of metal fittings using a frequency generator. Of course, there is another area called Mount Judy, some ancient writers said people could still see the ark in New Testament times. An expedition found wood in 1953, encouraging further expeditions, but carbon dating was not able to confirm that. There is also another area called Mount Suleiman. A veteran named Ed Davis claimed he saw the remains of Noah's ark while he was stationed in Iran during World War II. Later expeditions claimed to find beam-like rocks 
in that particular area. Now, the fact of the matter is, these all can't be true. But then again, there's a possibility that maybe they could. It is possible that after the ark landed, maybe the ark was broken up by geological shiftings, volcanic activity, maybe even immediately after the ark in order to build shelters, in order to begin to have some kind of semblance of life, the ark was actually deconstructed. Wood was used. We, we don't know. The problem is, is that you, when you really get down to the scientific study, the dilemma you run into is that Mount Ararat is actually a volcanic area. So it is conceivable that the ark never even survived. Mount Ararat is technically known as a stratovolcano. That's a cone-shaped volcano which builds progressively from a central vent that erupts many times and deposits successive layers of lava and volcanic ash on the flanks of the growing edifice. Modern Mount Ararat actually consists of two stratovolcanoes, what they call Greater Ararat and Lesser Ararat. They rise above a plain which itself is about 5,000 feet above sea level. The summit of Greater Ararat is about 16,000 feet above sea level, while Lesser Ararat, just eight miles to the east of it, is only about 12,000 feet. Regardless, it's pretty high. And Ararat has been very active in previous parts of history, volcanic-wise. Together, these two cover a massive area of 420 square miles and have been estimated to consist of over 280 cubic miles of lava and volcanic ash. Now, when did this actually form? It is a dormant volcano today, but it was active until recently. A steam blast eruption of volcanic ash flow opened up on the northern flank of Greater Ararat as early as 1840, accompanied by an earthquake of an estimated 7.5 magnitude. The cloud of steam and ash caused a huge landslide, utterly devastating a monastery, a Catholic monastery, so kudos for the volcano on that, Toasty! and a village, unfortunately, in its path. Could it have taken out the ark? Possible. Earlier Ararat eruptions are known from oral history and archaeological excavation. These were rumored to have occurred in 1783, 1450, and there's record as far back as 1550 BC. Glaciers and avalanches have eroded canyons in the flanks of the volcano, exposing its internal layers. And this has allowed geologists to do detailed field work that has established when and how Mount Ararat was formed. Today, Ararat is only one-fiftieth of this area. In other words, it's not even today as large as it one time was. It is actually a dot in comparison to what it was the time when Noah got off the ark. So the question is, could the ark still be there even if it was there? Now, the article goes on to state that chances are it's not. Dr. Andrews writes, does this shake my faith in God's word as a reliable count of a historical global flood cataclysm? Well, he answers, I love it. Absolutely not. And let me just pause here and say that we need nothing other than God's word to know the truth. Now, you might say that's circular reasoning. You can say whatever you want. But everybody is living by some sort of truth. You're either living by a relative truth of your own or you're living by choice by the objective truth of God's word. You've got to live by God's word.
So we don't necessarily need archaeological verification, but it's nice when we find it. However, I like what he says. Absolutely not. We don't need that. The Bible clearly states, quote, the mountains of Ararat, not Mount Ararat itself. So it did not have to land on Mount Ararat. So he writes, I'm even more confident in its trustworthiness, not less so. Also, we should not need remnants of Noah's Ark to justify or bolster our faith. Now, I want to pause time out and do a plug here for what I mean by the Word of God. And when I mean the Word of God for English-speaking people, I mean the authorized King James Version 1611 any edition. You go, oh my goodness, alive, I'm tuning in for the first time. You're one of those King James only guys? No, you're more than welcome to use whatever you want. I am one of those that believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. All others are either good translations, bad translations, or garbage like the message. It's true. But I digress. Here's the point. <clears throat> even this doctor, uh, what, what was his name? Dr. Andrew Snelling. Even this doctor fails to understand that every word of God matters. What do you mean? I want to say something again. I'm going to read what he says. He says, uh, where are we here? Absolutely not. He said, it doesn't state that it landed. Did you catch that? It doesn't state that it landed on Mount Ararat, but on the mountains of Ararat. Actually, it doesn't say the word landed at all. The word that it states is going to throw us into that little surprise that we have coming. We'll come back to that in a minute. I do like that Dr. Andrew says God's word is absolutely true in every detail because God is its author. Even without finding the ark, there's overwhelming geological evidence that the flood occurred, and that is true. And scientifically, that's one of the reasons why carbon dating doesn't work. Carbon dating is based off of a concept that you find mentioned in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, the scoffers and the mockers of chapter 3 say all things continue as they were. In other words, it doesn't take into account the punctuated catastrophes that have taken place. And there are two. In Genesis 1, there is clearly a global universal flood. Some people say, do you believe in the gap theory? No, I believe in the gap truth. There, there is no theory about it. It is crystal clear. We have that catastrophic event. The second catastrophic event we have took place in Noah's flood. So when you're trying to carbon date and you're basing it off of billions and billions and billions of years, you're going to get a skewed report back. So I like what he says here. He says, even without finding the ark, there is overwhelming geological evidence. The field of geology is just one of many tools that God gave us to explore his handiwork and to show others why our faith is reasonable and exciting. So the question is, has Noah's ark been found? Can it be found? Are there other areas that have been overlooked or that have come up in recent years where Noah's ark may be? Well, there have been even recent discoveries. There is, in 2003, a satellite image that shows an arc-shaped object jutting out of the side of Ararat. Investigators were hoping to get a better image of the original grainy photograph. That photograph showed a large structure, likewise, coming out of the side of Mount Ararat. It is actually difficult, however, to determine the object's size or whether the image was were taken at the same time. Some Noah Ark hunters hope this might be their next big break, but geologists say that the object simply looks like a rock 
outcropping that only appears arc-like when snow and ice melt in the right spots. To date, the Turkish government has not permitted an expedition to explore the site. Then there was a recent discovery in 1993 called The Beam from the Ark. A 1993 CBS program, The Incredible Discovery of Noah's Ark, featured a Frenchman I'm French! Why do you think I have this outrageous accent? who reported he found a wooden beam in a crevice on Ararat and saw a large, dark object under the ice. Fernand Navarro's son shot black and white film footage of his father carrying the beam down the mountain. The program described the wood's radiocarbon age as 5,000 years. But testing by six labs concluded the wood was less than 2,000 years old. Also, members of the expedition claimed that Navarro actually purchased the wood in town, carried it up the mountain, pretended like he discovered it, and carried it back down. So there is a universal truth that you should draw on right there. Never trust a Frenchman. However, there was another one that came up called the Arc-Shaped Formation. We mentioned this earlier, but this was followed up by Ron Wyatt. There is a lot of evidence that lacks in this, but there's a lot of evidence that points in the right way. I had also mentioned about the Turkish guide that claimed to discover the interior compartments of the Ark. Now, I just have to say, that would be amazing if that were true. Think about that for a second. Imagine how cool it would be to walk into Noah's Ark. That, that must be an amazing thing, if it were true. A Turkish guide claimed, as I mentioned already in the article, to discover the interior compartments of the Ark. A Hong Kong ministry called NAMI sent a team to the site. In 2010, the team announced that they had recovered wooden specimens which they believe were part of the Ark. They produced a video, shared several photos of the team members inside the structure. Evidence of possible fraud, however, started to come to the surface. The Kurdish man who led the team did not allow the team's experts to visit the site. The research and reports had numerous inconsistencies. Further reports of visit to this site, including claims of the discovery of archaeological artifacts, are vague. Radiocarbon dating of the wood claimed to come from this site yielded ages that are far too recent to be from the Ark, and some of the pieces are even dated as modern wood. Well, that's kind of disappointing. I guess they went to Lowe's to pick up what they needed. Some of them even have what appear to be machine marks for modern wood planers. Well, there's also the concept of the beam rock that we mentioned earlier. Uh, or I should say the beam wood, what, which some believe is actually just nothing more than rock. In 2006, Bob Cornuke, and if you can get anything a hold of him, read his work, follow him, good stuff. We don't agree 100%, but some good stuff there. Bob Cornuke led a team of 14 Americans to visit the region in Iran, where a World War II veteran claimed he saw the Ark. Well, when he got there, Cornuke's organization called The Base, Bible Archaeology Search and Exploration, identifies this site as the one the veteran saw. Despite these assertions, geologists say the beams has all the appearance of a common geological formation, when fine layers of rock are upended and eroded, but BASE did not do any lab testing, so we still have no verification. Now, I'm going to tell you, my personal opinion is that you're probably not going to find the art.
You're probably not going to find any of this stuff. And one of the reasons why is for a simple truth. Whether it is the King James Bible or whether it is Noah's Ark, God always backs you into a corner of faith. God never proves himself to the degree that we don't have to have a measure of faith. He opens up the very Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Either you believe that or you don't. You have to take him by faith. So chances are we're not going to find that. But it is interesting to speculate. There are some people that believe that it was simply not, it was there, but it is never going to be found. Because in the days and months and years after the flood, that lumber would have been valuable. That lumber would have been repurposed after the flood. Immediately following the flood, wood for construction and fires might not have been readily available for several years. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is we'll come to this issue of the wood in a minute, but that's again making an assumption. This states, though, that Noah's family may have torn down much of the structure for these purposes. Then there is the fact that there is decay over time. Wood structures do not generally last for centuries, even if treated with pitch. Consider the condition of barns built 100, 200 years ago without regular upkeep. Freezing has its share of problems as well. Some have proposed that the ark is trapped in a glacier, thus preserving the wood from decay. However, glacier advance and recedes, so... The ark could be moving, could be swallowed up, it could be torn to shreds. The truth of the matter is, historical records show that the hunt for the ark dates as far back as the time of Eusebius in 275 BCE. The question remains, will the ark ever be found? Could it be found or was it lost to the times that then were? Well, we just don't know. But it is fascinating to think about. But when we think about Noah's ark, we do often make a mistake, and that mistake is this. We immediately rush to the assumption that we know what Noah's Ark actually was. Now, the reason that we know that is because the defenders of the faith, and I say that loosely, have spent years trying to convince the world that a great, big, giant boat it was. But what if it wasn't a boat? What if it was never designed to be seaworthy? What if that big, huge, monstrous, monstrous boat in Kentucky is our concept of what the ark was, but not what God's concept and intention was? Well, I wish I could claim an original thought on this, but there is a great book, and if you don't have it, you must get it today, now, order it. It is a book by Jeffrey W. Martis called The Prince of the Power of the Air. And although it's not focused exclusively on Noah's Ark, there is a fascinating theory that he has. And I believe that it has moved in my own thinking from theory to reality. Okay, let me read on page 87 to set the tone and then we'll discuss it. Mortis writes, the devil's pre-fallen name was Lucifer. You can find that in Isaiah chapter uh, number 14, a designation that is generally indicates a bearer of light. This is exactly what we find in regards to the cherubim as outlined by the prophet Ezekiel. Now, it's very important to pause here. We often think of Satan as the devil. 
uh, an angel of light, yada, yada, yada. But the fact of the matter is, Satan by constitution, defined by the Lord and the Word of God, is a cherub. So the Bible tells us that he was the anointed cherub. Mordis writes, before the devil sinned and became the devil, he was not an angel as many suppose, but an anointed cherub, referenced in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14. Although scripture recognizes both cherub and angels as heavenly hosts, cherubim are not angels, but a completely different type of being. Unlike angels, a perusal of scripture will show that one of the primary jobs of cherubim is to ferry the throne of God. In this capacity, as the transporters of the Lord's chariot, cherubim are literally lux fur, i.e. Latin, light, ferrymen, or bearers of the light. We see this same job mirrored by the Kohathites who were charged with bearing the Ark of the Covenant. Picture the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the priests. The Kohathites ported the Lord's mercy seat. This not only typified the moving of God's throne from one place to another, but also movement through the air by the cherub. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 7 through 11, and Psalms 18, verses 16 through 10, in my distress I called upon the Lord, and he rode upon a cherub and did fly, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. Mardis writes, note that in one of the quoted verses, how that the flying cherub are likened to the movement of wind. Does the wind have wings? Not literally, but cherub do. This riding of God upon a cherub is the exact thing that Ezekiel is found describing. Ezekiel states, Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chabar, and I knew that they were the cherubims. Marnus writes, Another scripture refers to this flying thing as the chariots of the cherubims in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 18. Now, what is he getting at? What he's saying is, is that when you read specifically in Ezekiel chapter number 1, chapter 3, and chapter 10, that the spirits of the cherubim themselves actually interfaced with some type of wheels. This is what gave the machine lift and movement. When in motion, this thing appeared as a glowing whirlwind, or rotating wind that emitted some form of electrical energy. You can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 1 where it is referred to as lightning. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark not only pictured this heavenly flying machine, the centerpiece of the tabernacle, but also depicted the cherubims as lux fur, literal bearers of the light of God. Okay, you say, well, what does that have to do at all with Noah's Ark? Well, what that has to do with Noah's Ark is that I think we have made a faulty assumption. We have made the assumption that what God made and gave to Noah was a great big boat. Noah, you build a boat. And men have tried to figure out how that thing made out of quote-unquote gopher wood could float the way that it did. Well, the truth of the matter is no one even knows what gopher wood means. 
The material that Noah used and his sons used to build the ark, the only place it is ever referenced at all in antiquity or anywhere in the Bible is in Genesis chapter number 6. So we don't actually know what gopher wood was. It could have been something that was exclusively to the pre-flood era. But here's the point. I like what Marta says. Noah and his sons were not marine engineers. And even if they were, the ark was unlike anything that had ever been made on earth before or since. He posits the theory that it was not a boat. It was more akin to a giant floating animal warehouse or bank vault. Unlike a boat, it had no mast, no mainsail, no rudder, no ship's wheel. It didn't need these things because it wasn't designed to be driven. And I would submit to you that it wasn't designed to float. Just as the Ark of the Covenant was set, and when it was ready to be carried, the four Kohathites, the four priests, the Levites that were designed to carry it, picked it up and elevated it. That may be what Noah's Ark was designed to do. Just as God had Moses place inside the ark memorials, so God had Noah, his people, his family, the new creation that was going to come placed inside the ark. And when it was sealed, then it was elevated above the floods, carried by the cherub, just as was pictured in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, could that be right? Could that be wrong? I don't know. But it is very interesting to think about because in Genesis chapter 6 and again in Genesis chapter 8, it talks about the Ark, uh, Noah's Ark, having a covering. That's exactly, exactly what the Ark of the Covenant had, a covering. And the Ark of the Covenant had two cherub whose wings were across and the four priests carrying it. That covering and the carrying. Now, what's even more fascinating is when you start to really look at some of the things, you start to really think about it, and words matter. Now, remember we talked about how that words matter. Dr. Andrews, as we were talking earlier, talked about how the ark landed, the ark landed, the ark landed, the ark landed, but that's not what it says. In Genesis chapter number 8, it says that the ark rested. Big difference. What's the difference? Here is the difference. Get your handy dandy Webster's 1828, or you can download the app. You'd be surprised what you learn from a good dictionary. Okay, what does rested mean? Here's what it means. It means laid on for support. Laid on for support. Now, what is the big difference? Well, here's the difference if you know a little bit of grammar. I don't lay myself down to sleep. I lie down. The action is mine. I lie down. But if I'm holding a child, I lay the child down. If I'm past tense, what did you do an hour ago to little Johnny? Oh, I laid Johnny down. That is what that is meaning. Rested. What does it mean? I think it implies that the ark was lifted up above the floods 
carried by the cherub, similar to what you see the Ark of the Covenant with the four cherubim. It was carried and protected by God through the flood, not designed to float. That pitch within and without, I would submit to you that that pitch might have been to seal it just as you have a pressurized chamber taking place in a jet. It was sealed and carried through. Could you imagine if the society back then was advanced as we believe that it was? Could you imagine what would happen to the ark, to a wood ship, a wood vessel? Think of all the trees. Think of all the debris. Think of all the rock, the stone. Think of all the things that could damage that ark. I think it's very possible that when God called them into the ark, that ark was sealed and it was lifted above the floods, not floating on the water, above the floods by the cherub. And at the right time, in God's, dest in God's sovereignty, it rested where he wanted it to be. In other words, he laid that ark down, very similar to when the children of Israel set the ark down and pulled out the staves. Now the question is, where then is the ark? We don't know. There are many things that are lost to antiquity. There are many things that God may never show us. There are many things that we don't know. But it is very interesting to think about because sometimes we have become so ingrained over and over and over. We assume, assume, assume certain things. And many times we assume it because we're trying to come up with a natural explanation because we have been dealing with natural humanism for so long. But what if supernaturally, what if supernaturally the cherub were called to carry Noah through and bring him on the other side? It's an interesting thought. I hope we find Noah's Ark, but whether we do or not, we have an amazing book in that Bible. And you ought to do two things. You ought to watch the soul trap and read your Bible. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. And the waters prevailed exceedingly.